Welcome to the RV Navigator Podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Of the RV Navigator, and we are in... Panama City, Florida, after having traveled from Houston, and we've been here just a few days, and I am Ken, your RV navigator, and my co-pilot. Hi, I'm Martha, and I'm definitely along for the ride. She's along for the ride, and uh, we have put a few miles under the old belt as we travel in our winter excursions. Um, We spent some time in Houston. How was Houston for you? Well, we're we're from Chicago, the third largest city in the United States, and Houston, I understand, is the fourth. And as we drove through on a Sunday afternoon towing the RV, Ken's always very brave and goes right through the middle of town, um, it struck me that Houston was like Chicago with palm trees. Um, had a very respectable set of skyscrapers, and we passed a museum district, and we passed um, a theater district, um, and it made us feel quite at home. Unfortunately, it didn't make us feel like we had to go back down town because we already have those things at home. So even though we said we were camping in Houston and that's kind of where we were on the outskirts, we really didn't spend much time in Houston itself. But our primary goal in going there was to go to the NASA Space Center. Uh, we've been fans of the space program since its earliest days when we were still in grade school and we watched Alan Shepard uh, go up into suborbital uh, atmosphere for 15 That's minutes. because we're baby boomers. And uh, o- over the years, we've gone to space, the Space Center in um, Cape Kennedy, and we went to Huntsville, Alabama, and toured the NASA facility there. And this was the last prong in the fork that needed to be done. And uh, there are two ways to tour the NASA Space Center. There's the conventional tram tour that most people take, which kind of twirls you around the campus very quickly. Uh, But because we're such big fans, we signed up for Level 9. And Level 9 means that there are only 12 of you in a van, and you have your own tour guide who takes you around for four hours and shows you things up close and personal in a way that the tram tour never could. So among the things that we saw that were really thrilling, I would say the most thrilling was to be in the old mission control uh, center where uh, Apollo 13 uh, said, Houston, we've got a problem, and you saw all the people chain-smoking there trying to figure out what to do about it. Uh, it looks just like it did back in the day because it is just like it was back in the day. Uh, at, at one point, they had dismantled the Space Center and sent it to the Smithsonian, but now that they have a new um, center for the flights that are going up now, they have reassembled all the old consoles, the red phone with the rotary dial, and it looks just like you think it should. Another thrill was to go to what they told us was the largest pool in the world where they practice um, assembling the components of the space center um, in as near a weightless situation as they can. So they literally build the same components that they're going to be assembling in outer space, uh, throw them in the pool, uh, put the astronaut in a similar sort of spacesuit, and he's accompanied by scuba divers who are retired more conventionally, and he practices for hours on end uh, going out into space and assembling these various pieces of the space center. Um, quite truthfully, you can see it better on a TV monitor, but it was still a thrill to be there in person. 
And we also got to eat lunch in the same cafeteria where the astronauts eat. Big deal. So uh, this was definitely, I mean, I've been waiting for 40 years to do this, so this was definitely a high point of the Houston visit for me. Otherwise, we spent a lot of time in the Galveston area. RVing goes, we want to talk a little bit about uh, some of our RVing experiences. We first um, decided to kind of stay south of uh, Houston just a bit uh, because we kind of wanted to be between the Gulf and uh, the city center, even though we didn't really go into Houston to any degree. But uh, we uh, looked at the campgrounds in the area and found that uh, they varied dramatically in price, I guess as, as we've come to expect. And and we always like to, to watch the pennies, as I'm sure you do. And it's uh, you, you wonder if you get what you pay for when you're going into some of these campgrounds. Um, she originally found the... It was a space center um, campground that was literally one exit up the expressway from where we stayed that was $39 a night. And um, it advertised a complimentary uh, continental breakfast and a free daily newspaper. But, shoot, I can buy a lot of breakfast and newspapers for $39 a night. And when we went there to look at it, it was well attended, so obviously people were biting the bullet and paying that price. But we didn't find the sites to be particularly nice or spacious, and it was right on the expressway, so you get that highway noise, where our little campground, which cost us about $20 a night, um, was a little more off the road and, and just fine, and we bought our own paper and cooked our own breakfast. And, and I guess that's one of the differences. We we find these huge camp. Not, it, it wasn't all that big. It was just a very expensive campground, and we, we you get a cement pad and a table, I guess. But we had um, a nice place to park our RV and a nice, uh, decent-sized space in a private campground. And as a matter of fact, when we first went in there, we were going to stay for four nights, and... Uh, in kind of conversation with the desk clerk and and looking at their rates, we realized that uh, the rate for the week was $120, which is only $17 a night. So we decided to uh, to take the weekly rate <laughs> instead. And I'm, w- I'm wondering if this is something you've considered. Uh, we, uh, what are where are your favorite campgrounds? What do you look for in a campground? You know, we lo- we really don't always look for cable TV and uh, sewer hookups and the complete package, but uh, we certainly look for space and uh, a nice environment. I think is one of our primary concerns. I don't know. You do most of the picking, so you tell us how well you pick. Well, I do my choosing based on what I'm planning on doing there. Uh, When we were in Houston, my primary goal was to sightsee the things that I wanted to see in Houston. And so I chose this campground because it was close to NASA and between Houston and Galveston because I thought we'd want to see Galveston as well. Now, where we're camped now in Panama City Beach, we really didn't have a big agenda. And uh, then I was looking for a more scenic uh, place to be with more spacious sites, and that generally is a state park and uh, it, it met our expectations we're sitting here looking out at the ocean and the birds are tweeting in the background as you can hear probably and uh, it's just a lovely place to be so in in this spot we are not doing a lot of running around and sightseeing because it's all right here so it very much depends on what your purpose in being in a place is. Um, I wish we weren't quite so restless because certainly it would make a lot more economic sense to stay at campgrounds, commercial ones, for a week or more. But we usually feel the itch and feel ready to move on, and that costs a bit more. 
And we do look at uh, at state parks and national parks and things. Uh, the time that we spent in um, San Benito, San Benito, San Benito, Texas. Uh, the five weeks, nearly five weeks that we spent there was the longest time we'd ever spent at any one campground. So uh, we we don't really stay for a long time. Uh, unless you're listening to this and you're, uh, and you're new to the RV game and you're going from place to place every night, uh, you may think that this is a leisurely pace. But we like the flexibility of being able to travel when we want to and sit when we want to. So that's a, a nice advantage of having a block of time in which to travel. But uh, while we were in Houston, uh, in the Houston area, we did um, visit several state parks, um, and w- they have some very nice state parks, but we found <laughs> that they're kind of expensive, in all honesty. Um, it would cost at least $25 a night for water and electric to camp um, but, however, they were some of the ones uh, were very much on the beach, and um, they were very convenient. Uh, if you remember from episode one, we were actually camped on the beach, uh, and that was uh, basically free. Um, in Texas, it was possible. Well, in that part of Texas, it wasn't possible to do that, as far as we could tell. You couldn't actually drive. It was possible to drive on the beach, but there was no camping apparently. So uh, the campground, though, the State Park campground in Galveston was was beautiful, but uh, they charge a fairly hefty entrance fee and camping fees. State Parks, if you're trying to be economical, it makes sense to confine yourself to one state. Most states have some kind of sticker that you can buy that takes care of the daily fee, which in Texas was 4 or $5 per person per day. Um, it would have made a lot more sense to buy the $60 annual sticker for the car and just stay in state parks in Texas and not keep moving. We also went to visit a really interesting state park while we were in Galveston area, whose name was? It was called Brazos Bend State Park, and we never would have gone there except that someone we met at the Elder Hostel told us that it was a wonderful spot, and she was absolutely right. It was kind of a you-can't-get-there-from-here place um, on the southwestern corner of greater Houston, let's put it that way. It was probably half an hour, 45 minutes outside of the city. And this was a wonderful um, natural spot. It was a series of freshwater lakes, river that were filled with alligators and water birds. And this was one of the few spots we found in Texas to do the kind of bike riding we like to do, which is on paths, which, as as advertised, were for hikers and bikers both. And uh, we rode around these little ponds and took a million pictures of birds and alligators and water turtles, all mossy and green. It was a fascinating, very natural spot to be, and I'm so glad that lady told us about it or I never would have gone there. And that's the advantage of the RV Navigator is we're trying to get this uh, sharing business going on here so that if you email us at navigator at rvnavigator.com, we will share these ideas that you have with other folks as we talk about them. And we'll read your email on the air here, and we'll, we'll get this uh, sharing going on. And, you know, going to th- going to special places is something that's very unique. Uh, we, did, we do bring our bikes along, and... Uh, we enjoy bike riding, and we found the Galveston area to be very nice for biking. Um, there's about 20 miles of seawall, sorry, 10 miles each way, uh, of seawall that you can ride on. We frequently ride around the cities and the the byways. 
Oh, yes, we wrote on the beach, uh, which it's nice to find very nice hard sand so that you can uh, actually write on it, and, and that's, a, that's a real pleasure, too. Although we are kind of disappointed. Um, if you haven't looked, there's a nice website called Rails to Trails, so you're going to have to look at the show notes to get the uh, specifics about this. But this trail, one of the things that's very popular in the Midwest is, is that these old train beds are turned into... Uh, bike trails. They take out all the ties and everything and put down gravel, and they are extensive in our area. And if you're coming to visit Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, you will find lots of these trails, and we're used to being having these accessible, and you can ride for hmm, 50 miles one way in many in many cases, in some places even longer, because these old railroad beds are wonderful. Um, and long, and the right-of-ways have been cleared years ago, so there's no real uh, issue with the right-of-way. And they uh, are nice grades because trains can't go you know, up and over hills and things, except at a very slow pace. So the paths are very nice in our area, and that's uh, the rails to trail. The trails to rails. <laughs> um, so we, we always bring our bikes along, and um, we see a lot of people with interesting bike racks. And uh, as you know, we're fifth wheelers, so our fifth wheel did not have a receiver on the back end. And the manufacturer said, oh, you can't do that. But um, we tried the bike rack that, that goes on the ladder, and the ladder took kind of a beating, plus the fact that I couldn't get up on the roof, and um, I'm frequently messing around up on the roof, so that it's critical that we have access to the roof uh, without having to take the bikes down. And we can never quite figure out the complex system for getting all of the the cover on. Yes, that was a pain. Anyway, so we abandoned that operation, and of course, if you don't have a receiver in the back, it's really hard. Oh, we don't have a bumper either, because we have that smooth fiberglass cap on the back, so it was difficult for us to mount our bikes anyplace. You couldn't put them on the truck very easily, and so we had a receiver installed on the bumper on the back of the, on the frame of the of the fifth wheel. Uh, some fifth wheels have this as part of their features, and you might want to consider that uh, when you're buying an RV because it is, to me, a, a plus. I don't think you want to put a lot of weight on it, although you see people around here having motorcycles. and It looks like their garage is along on the back of their rig. <laughs> I, I would think that that kind of unbalances your RV, <clears throat> but a couple of bikes weighing... 100 pounds, I don't think it's going to cause too much problem, and it hasn't caused too much problem. They've been up there over 10,000 miles. <clears throat> so we bought this receiver and then a standard uh, bike rack that goes into our receiver. Uh, so that works out very well, and uh, it's very fast to put up on the, onto, the trailer, onto the rear end of the trailer. They mount very quickly. And because the pickup truck also has a receiver, you can take the hitch, uh, the receiver hitch off, put it into the truck, and mount your bikes on the back of the pickup. So that's how we transport them around when we, either at home or when we're on the road here, when we need to take them someplace. We are, however, still looking for a good bike cover for this operation. So if you have any suggestions for us, I've scoured the web. Uh, it, it's a 
uh, rack that the bikes just sit on top of, and um, it has a screw-down thing on top, and uh, we bungee them to the trailer, but uh, we would love to cover them because inevitably you drive through some rain, and my chain is getting very rusty-looking, and I feel bad about it. And we are using the famous blue tarp, which doesn't really do a very good job of keeping the water off, but it's the best we can do. Speaking of blue tarps, we have come across some blue tarps, um, and it was kind of a sad experience because uh, on our trip from Texas over to Florida, where we are now, we're in the panhandle of Florida, we, of course, had to travel across Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi. It isn't really that long of a drive, but uh, we did spend a night at a campground there. And um, it's about six months since Hurricane Katrina devastated this area. We came across on Interstate 10, and we didn't even make it out of Texas when we began to see um, lots of blue tarps in the place of people's roofs, uh, forests that looked like an egg beater had gone through the trees, knocking them down and breaking them. And the campground we stopped at, um, our proprietor was just fit to be tied because she had lost all of her help running this campground, and the uh, government had just extended the um, aid for uh, hurricane victims for 13 more weeks, which meant 13 more weeks would go by before she could hire somebody to help her. So she and her husband were running this fairly large campground all alone, and it was full. Uh, there were tourists like us, uh, but we camped next door to an um, insurance agent from Allstate who was putting in a lengthy stay uh, doing his job there, and people who looked like they must have been construction workers. And um, we were very grateful that she and her husband were keeping the campground up, but uh, it was an exhausting experience for her, and she was just frazzled. And as we drove around the town, it didn't take long to find um, a place that used to be an Exxon gas station that now had become a FEMA campground. And the trailers had that distinctive all-white look. Uh, they're little shoeboxes with no slide-outs, so very small inside. Um, a lot of them had very small windows, too. I don't know why they did that, but I would think that would make it even more unpleasant to be inside this box uh, for day after day after day. And uh, in the town, we saw some people that were trying to rebuild their homes and some homes that obviously the people had walked away. So that was our introduction to Louisiana, and as we kept driving east, uh, we saw more and more FEMA trailers being towed past us. We assumed on their way to New Orleans or that vicinity. And uh, the interstate then, 10 goes down to New Orleans, so we didn't follow that route. We stayed on 8, and as we got away from uh, the coastline, things began to look more normal. Um, as our um, as that campground lady advised us, it didn't really get better again until Mobile, Alabama. So it's a huge, devastated area, and our hearts really go out to all those people who have been suffering for six months with no real end in sight. And we certainly didn't mean to be gawking, but we've read so much about it and heard so much about it that we felt we had to take a little visit to the city, and not to New Orleans, certainly, but to the city we were camped in, just to kind of see it with our own eyes. And it is truly, truly devastating. I mean, people's houses knocked down roofs and, you know, just piles of rubbish, which was once somebody's house. And uh, I'm sure they're not happy about living in a FEMA trailer, but it's probably better than living nowhere and I wish there was more that that could be done to help them out and it's obviously been a long time and will continue to be a problem into the future um, 
But now, uh, that was on our trip uh, across to Florida, and now we're in the panhandle of Florida enjoying spring break because it is now um, early March, and little did we know that the beach areas would be populated with... College kids. Um, it's kind of funny here in our campground. Uh, they're either trailers like ours or Class A's filled with geezers like us or tents filled with um, too many young people with lovely smooth skin and no gray hair. And uh, by and large, I would have to say the young kids here have been well-behaved and just doing their own thing. But they do have a nasty habit of playing their music very loud over their car speakers and opening up all the doors of their car so it blares all over the campground. So we've been treated to a large variety of music, um, most of which taste we do not share. But um, all in all, they haven't been bad here. And we're wondering if they're kind of unhappy that they're here because in the panhandle, this week it hasn't really been all that warm. We tried to go to the beach yesterday, and I'm a real beach nut, but I don't think I even lasted an hour. It was windy, and it was a little bit too cold. And uh, I think college kids love to go to the beach and go swimming, and the Panhandle is not the place to do that at the beginning of March. Spring break is really hard to plan for. Unlike Christmas week, you know when that's going to be. It seems to be a fairly extensive period of time, starting the first week in March, and depending on when Easter falls, it could all go all the way to the end of April. So that's two months where um, geezers have to plan carefully where they're going to camp, or else they're going to be treated to loud music they don't really care for. Oh, the problems of traveling. And by cold, she means uh, it was barely 70. So, you know, we're not talking about cold weather, but uh, it certainly was cool. And this, we're staying in a state park, and we don't know exactly <laughs> what Panama City is like, but we uh, have seen it on TV, and there are apparently parties and MTV galore. So we hope we're not talking to any, offending any of our listeners, but I doubt that there's anybody... Yeah, <laughs> that age group who's who's actually listening to this to this uh, podcast. Anyway, uh, you do need to watch out for this, um, and so I, we're we're kind of headed uh, north from here, so it's unlikely we will encounter too many more problems with this. And we're headed north because we have to get home because we are about to embark on an RV caravan. And this is our second RV caravan, and uh, we want to kind of talk a little bit about our experiences with RV caravans. You may have thought about doing one, and maybe you've done one, and you'd like to share your experiences with us. Once again, feel free to email us at navigator at rvnavigator.com. Uh, we have... Um, we are embarking on, a, on an unusual one, and we will try to keep you posted as we go along here, because we are going to... RV Navigate in South Africa. Uh, this is, uh, if you haven't considered this as a RV trip, um, taking a safari, you can indeed uh, spend a month or so in South Africa, and they rent all the RVs that are going to be in the caravan, and you drive across the the uh, the country of South Africa, stopping at, in our case, six national parks with all of the big five animals there ready for you to take pictures of and things. We're very excited about this because it's, uh, in many cases, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But we did last year do another caravan, 
and uh, it was quite exciting, too. We started this caravan in El Paso, Texas, where we met uh, 24 other RV couples. Um, Typically, the RV caravan has a leader and a tail gunner who drives at the end, and you get um, an itinerary of the drive for the day with stoplights and signs and things fairly clearly delineated. And the leader starts out driving, and everybody, um, like ducks in a row, follows behind him. But what happens is traffic separates you, and the poor tail gunner ends up coming in a half an hour to an hour after everybody else has already arrived in the campground. Um, RV caravans are very popular for people who like to travel in groups who don't good choice because we had never camped in Mexico before. We did not speak Spanish and we wanted to have a little assistance crossing the border and the RV caravan met our needs beautifully. And uh, in this case we had a two-tiered adventure. We started the trip putting our RVs on a rail car and spending five weeks on the train in our RV touring the Copper Canyon, which is like the Grand Canyon of Mexico. And every day uh, the train traveled on on the rails for a few hours, and then we were pulled off to a siding, and we got off of the railroad car where our RV was parked and did sightseeing in a more conventional, touristy sort of way. It was the perfect way to see the Copper Canyon because you cannot drive there by road at the present time. I think they're working on that. And the scenery on that trip was spectacular. The other part of that trip that was really neat is we uh, put our RV on a ferry, an overnight ferry, and sailed across the Sea of Cortez to the Baja of California and then spent about two weeks driving up the Baja, which was spectacular. I recommend it highly. Now, this RV caravan took a little over a month. Uh, There are shorter ones and longer ones that go all the way into Central America. There are four or five companies doing this kind of trip um, that are rivals. Their trips are similar, but if you study the itineraries, there are differences and slight differences in the cost. So I would advise you to shop around. I think they all do pretty much the same thing. But um, people use these caravans to visit places that they may not feel brave enough to visit on their own or for the camaraderie of it. Uh, The trips to Alaska are also very popular to be done that way. And on the... Copper Canyon, a caravan, uh, we drove about 2,500 miles in 28 days or so. And so it's, it was a, a fair amount of driving, and we didn't spend very much time in any one place. We did drive all the way to Mazatlan and to Cabo St. Lucas on the Baja. And, uh, you know, we went to places that we have always uh, wanted to visit on land, but... Uh, we're kind of apprehensive about uh, doing the Mexican travel adventure, and I think by ourselves. And so I, th- I think we learned that uh, we could do it ourselves. Uh, the Mexican people are very welcoming and friendly, and that once you leave the border towns, that uh, that actually Mexico is a very nice place to RV in. You know, taking our own RV meant that we had all of our same facilities that we always do. The roads were interesting. Uh, You take a lot of toll roads, so we spent uh, something over $100 on tolls. But then driving up the Baja, you wished you had a toll road because it was very narrow, two-lane, without a shoulder sort of driving experience. And um, every day they would say, this is where we're going, this is how long it would take to get there, and this is how many miles we're driving, and... Um, you know, take your take your time getting there. I think on the on the caravans that go in the United States, uh, they're much more lax about uh, keeping the group together because uh, 
you know, we're used to the roads and that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you want to stop and have lunch, that's fine. But in in the Mexican caravans, we, we stop together for lunch and we stop for <laughs> breaks. Many people brought along their pets, and so that uh, we had to make pet stops so that they could go out. And that was a problem, apparently, on the on the railroad cars because the pets wouldn't go on the cars. But fortunately, the train did stop, as Martha mentioned, and uh, we would only spend a few a few hours on the train actually traveling, but then, of course, the RV was on the train for five full days, and five nights and, and part of six days, so that we had to be self-contained and totally uh, by ourselves in the in the RV for that time. And we were kind of surprised that there was no, like, passenger car where everybody kind of gathered to, to watch the scenery, but... Uh, if the weather is decent, you you take your lawn chairs, you put them out on the on the deck of the car of the train car, and uh, the flatbed car, and you can watch the scenery there, which is actually better than any railroad car because you can see both sides and it's a huge panoramic view. The most time we spent on the train was uh, 11 hours, and that was on the last day. Uh, the other days it was a short time, and then they take you on a bus to dinner or touring and seeing the sights that are, there are to see because it really isn't that far. It's only a few hundred miles. but uh, So the five days is spent at a leisurely pace, I would say. I was also interested in the quality of the campgrounds in Mexico. I'm sure the RV caravan companies do their best to select the best that Mexico has to offer, and, and it was fine, but it, there definitely were differences between those campgrounds and what we're used to at home. Uh, certainly when you go to Mexico, you're worried about water, um, and most of the campgrounds sold water in five-gallon um, containers, and little men would even come and put it into your RV for you. Uh, we bought a water purifier, and we took our showers in the bathhouse instead of using the expensive purified water we were purchasing, and that worked out fine, too. Um, electricity was also a little iffy. Uh, sometimes uh, the 30-amp service that we required wasn't available, and we had to be careful when you wanted to run the microwave and the coffee pot at the same time. But but there always was electricity of some sort and um, a sewer possibility of some sort. And generally, we were camped quite close to one another, which made for lots of camaraderie since we all got to know each other very well in the month that we traveled together. My slide slid out, and the other slide was there so that you, from the next-door neighbor, so that you probably couldn't even walk between the two. <laughs> uh, that was one of the realities of, of that experience. The campgrounds were small, and it took some jockeying around to get into them, especially further south. But, you know, that's a, a kind of a fun experience and uh, something you can definitely live with. Uh, I didn't want to leave uh, the impression that we had electricity everywhere because we did do several nights where we were more or less boondocking. Of course, they, they tell you in advance that you're going to be doing this and we we carried a generator uh, which we always do anyway so that uh, we could um, live in a in as normal a style as possible although it definitely doesn't generate 30 amps but we can do the the usual things make that coffee in the morning and run the hair dryer which is obviously crucial after the big shower so <laughs> What we've become used to uh, in terms of camping. We always uh, have this question in our minds, is this camping or should we call it something else? Anyway, um, I think that's about uh, the end of the show for today and we will turn it back to you and hopefully you will have some comments and you'll 
visit our website. If you'd like to see where we are, uh, we have a link to our blog, which has pictures uh, both of um, our RV caravan as well as our upcoming caravan. I'm sure it will have some interesting photos of lions attacking our RV or whatever. And uh, if you'd like to see Galveston, if you'd like to see the Space Center and me sitting in front of Mission Control, controlling the space shuttle, there I am. And uh, all of that can be had by a quick link off of uh the RV Navigator website. So that's rvnavigator.com, and we'll see you next time.